0: Let us pray. Great God and Father, Lord, we we pray that Your Word would edify us, that Your Word would transform our minds, that it would even rebuke us where needed. For those here that may not know you, we pray that your word would pierce their hearts of stone as only your word can. And Lord, we thank you that we serve a great God who who took on flesh to walk among us, Lord a God who suffered temptation beyond what we can imagine, yet without sin. Lord of God, who is our prophet, priest, and king, and our Lord, yet also our brother. We pray all these things in his name, Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Amen. You turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. We're dealing today with just two verses, and we will actually, we'll actually be dealing with this both today and then somewhat uh, theologically again next week. We're dealing with the temptation of Jesus Christ. The, the title of today's sermon is The Temptation of the God-Man, and, and that title's selected purposefully because there are significant errors with respect to the temptation of Christ if we fail to remember that he is truly God and truly man. I saw a video recently. It was a, above the head shot, or video facing downward. It's two little girls standing around a flower pot. And they are saying, dut, dut. And you hear the voice of mommy saying, don't touch. And what's truly fascinating, what's, what's profound and, and I think universal, is to watch their little chubby hands. Because the hand touch wants to touch and then it comes back and then it's put it behind them because the hand clearly is the problem, right? And it's this display of temptation. And there's nothing inherently sinful about dirt right? But mommy had said no. And everything in the little heart says, but I want to. And we find here in, in that little illustration something I think we can all relate to. And it's easy for us to chuckle at young children. <laughs> and That's okay. But isn't the case that often we see in them a profound glimpse of our own nature, universality of our problem. And it's this. Temptation is universal, isn't it? Temptation is universal. There's not a person on this planet who hasn't faced temptation of various kinds. And we often fail in the face of that temptation, don't we? At the core, we're no different from the toddler who just can't stop putting his hand in it. And when we when that happens isn't our failure in the face of temptation a source of great discouragement perhaps shame perhaps even fear what do we do with that? We have here in Mark's gospel a wonderful glimpse into the life of the lord jesus christ particularly at this point i'm going to back up and, and read beginning in verse 9 we looked at this some weeks ago uh, before i left on the baptism of the lord jesus So i'm going to read that account again because i want you to get the the feel you know w- with mark we follow, follow somewhat of a peter style pacing everything is immediately it's urgent And we we get that sense here if we'll back up a little bit. Hear now the word of God. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I'll read through verse 13. Into those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. When faced with temptation, when faced with temptation, if your focus is not upon Christ's victory, then your fear and shame and doubt is likely to continue. Or it will be falsely and hypocritically covered up. Don't you know that to be the reality? If, if when we are faced with temptation, if our focus is not on Christ and his victory then our fear, our shame, our doubt is likely to go on. Or we're likely, deceitfully, hypocritically to cover it up. Why is this narrative here? We have have this, this glorious scene, literally glorious scene of Christ's baptism. The voice of God thunders from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we're told immediately the spirit from there leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Now, Mark gives us the very briefest of accounts. He gives us two verses. Matthew and Luke give us a much broader, more comprehensive narrative of what takes place. And we'll look at Matthew's gospel here in just a moment. But but what do we take out of this? Why is this even here? Mark includes much less detail than Luke or Matthew, but what's what's the point of Jesus being tempted? Was it necessary for him to be tempted by the devil? Was it necessary? The answer is yes, but why? Three things I want us to focus on this morning here in the account of our Lord's temptation. Firstly, this is the fulfillment of Scripture. So if you want a a simple outline, the first one is fulfillment. The second place, we we see in in the temptation of Jesus Christ an identification with sufferers and sinners. And thirdly, we find here in this narrative hope for sinners, So three words to remember, fulfillment, identification, and hope. Fulfillment, identification, and hope. Let's look in the first place at how this fulfills the scriptures. The fact that we, we, Mark is very clear. Jesus didn't wander into the wilderness. It wasn't the devil who drug Jesus into the wilderness. This was the third person of the Trinity, the true and living God, who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That was the purpose. That was why he was there, was for the sake or for the purpose of this temptation. And this reminds us that all things are happening according to the omniscient and wise counsel of the triune God. And what we find here is that by, by means of this temptation, Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. In what way? Jesus is the true Adam. And Jesus is the true Israel of God. We're going to look at those those two in turn here briefly. But I want you to see how this this works itself out. Turn over with me to Matthew's Gospel. Turn back one book. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We read this. My, my goal is not to give a full exposition of, of Matthew's account here, but let's, let's work with a summary. Let's work with a summary, let, a category of these three temptations. And I think we could summarize the temptations that Jesus experienced from the devil in, in three ways. The first one was an appeal to satisfy his own flesh. The text clearly says Jesus was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. His body was hungry basic biological reality. He was hungry, and Satan tempted him to fulfill that legitimate desire, that legitimate need, in an illegitimate way. So it was an appeal to satisfy his own flesh. The second temptation was was really to question the word of God and the promises of God. That was the nature of the second temptation. Jesus, will you give doubt Will you demonstrate a reluctance to believe and depend upon the word of God? And thirdly, there's an offer here to exalt himself. Rather than waiting upon the sovereign will of God to unfold, here is the opportunity for you to exalt yourself. Now those things are important, and we see them... This is a recapitulation in a way. It's a repeating of something that's already happened, in fact, multiple times. Think about what happened in the garden. See, there exists a theological significance to these temptations. It, it is not, these were not random. By successfully defeating Satan in each of these three areas of temptation, Jesus perfectly did what neither Adam nor Israel had done. So first, consider Adam. And the Apostle Paul makes a a very important theological comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ, the first Adam and the second Adam. In Romans 5, for example, you don't have to turn here, but in Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Meaning they didn't sin against the same law that Adam sinned against who was a type, Paul says, of the one who was to come. Adam was a type. Adam was a a big neon signpost pointing to something in the future far greater than Adam. In fact, William Hendrickson makes this, this helpful analogy. He's talking about the fact that Jesus is, is driven into the wilderness, and Mark specifically says that he was there among the wild animals. Well, what's the point of that little detail? Well, if you know anything about it at all about the Judean wilderness, it was a rough place. No, very few things grew there, but there were jackals and hyenas and lions and other wild beasts there. And the point is, is to contrast this with one particular place, Eden. In paradise, with no want of anything, not lacking anything, Adam sinned against God. And see, we are often tempted, aren't we, to think that, well, if I just had this or that or didn't have this other thing, then I wouldn't be sinning like I am. Adam was in a state of innocence. There was nothing that Adam lacked, and yet he rebelled and sinned against God. And here's the contrast. Jesus in the wilderness... Deprived of even the most basic things of food and water for 40 days. And yet withstood the onslaught of the evil one. William Henderson says, The region where Jesus fasted and was tempted was therefore the scene of abandonment and peril, the very opposite of paradise, where the first Adam was tempted. See, Christ succeeded against Satan in the specific ways in which Adam sinned. Adam had, or the, Satan made an appeal to Adam based on his flesh. He offered him food. He offered Eve food, and they took it and ate. They saw it was pleasing to the eyes, and they, they took it. But it wasn't because they were hungry and lacked other things. But also, Satan caused Adam and Eve to question the word of God and the promises of God. Hath God not said? Hath God really said? And thirdly, Satan tempted Adam to exalt himself. Where did he say that? Well, when Satan promised that in the eating of the fruit, that Adam would then possess the knowledge of good and evil, he's not saying to Adam, if you will eat this, then you will have an academic understanding of what is wrong and what is evil and what is good. What he's saying is you will get to determine that you will know in the sense of being like God. See, exalt yourself. You get to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. Is anything ringing a bell here yet? Christ succeeded against Satan in the very specific ways in which Adam failed. We see the same kind of recapitulation with Israel. In the same way, Christ triumphed over, over Satan where Israel failed. You know, It's not a coincidence that it was 40 days in the wilderness. There's a parallel there to the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness because of her disobedience, because of her rebellion against God. You remember, as as the people of God were, were led by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm across the Red Sea, all of Pharaoh's army is swallowed up in the Red Sea. All of Israel gets to pass through on dry land. And you know what the first thing they did on the other side we're hungry. we got nothing to eat. And they grumbled against God on that very point. A food of basic necessities. Does God not know they need these things? And they doubted him at that very point. But then the, the next thing they did is they questioned the word of God. They questioned the promises of God. They gummed and they grumbled to Moses. Did God really tell you he was going to deliver us? Did God really tell you he was going to give us this land? And God offered, or Satan offered them indirectly to exalt themselves. And we could point to a number of illustrations of this, but remember when Israel cried out, give us a king like the nations? That was nothing less than 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 a cry to exalt themselves and to become like those around them. So the primary point, the primary theological point about the temptation of Christ, even with just two verses here in Mark's Gospel, is that the the temptation of the God-man is to demonstrate his unique victory over Satan in the fulfillment of the Scriptures. This also serves as foreshadowing of a complete annihilation of all the powers of darkness that is to come. Christ was victorious as at precisely the same point at which both Adam and Israel failed. You see, by, by, by successfully being tempted by the devil, or, by being, or I should say by being tempted by the devil and successfully withstanding those attacks, Jesus becomes the true Adam, the true federal head of all who will follow him. And Jesus becomes the true Israel the true keeper of the covenant promises of God. So, it is significant. Mark and Matthew and Luke all record here that following the temptation, Jesus was ministered to by angels. You ever wondered about that? Matthew and Luke tell us that this was after the temptation. Mark doesn't tell us the chronology. He just says here, going back to to Mark, he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him i think there's a great deal of encouragement in this statement jesus demonstrates here that heavenly help was available both to adam and to israel and they neglected it this same heavenly help the same ministry of angels was available to adam and he thought i don't need that i can be wise in my own eyes It was available to Israel, and Israel said, we don't need that. We have our own wisdom. We have our own might. Both failed to seek the kindness and mercy and strength of God in the midst of trial, and yet it was not so with Jesus. Jesus depended perfectly upon the strength of his Father. He depended perfectly upon the strength supplied by his Father through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was victorious against Satan from the very beginning of his public ministry. See, immediately after his baptism, this takes place. And he shows a victory here. And you may be thinking at this point, okay, well, I see that Jesus is, is, the, is the true Adam, that Jesus is, is the true Israel, but how is that important to me now? I mean, I see that historically, but how is that important now? What, what, are their, what does this have to do with the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked that's that's really the second point we see in the text is that this demonstrates Jesus identification with those who suffer and especially with those who are tempted to sin see it's not only the case that Jesus defeated Satan where Adam failed it's not only the case that Jesus defeated Satan where Israel failed But his willingness to endure temptation demonstrates his identification with sinners and sufferers. Now we looked last time, with respect to the baptism of Jesus, this was an ordinance, this was a a ritual to demonstrate publicly that I am unclean. So anyone who submitted themselves to baptism, particularly for a Jew, to say, I am unclean, I am just like the Gentiles, was was offensive to many of the Jews. And Jesus submitted himself to that, not because he needed to be cleansed, but because he was identifying with his people. But here, rather than Jesus identifying only symbolically, in the temptation, he he demonstrates an identity with sinners experientially, actually, not only symbolically. In Isaiah 53, we'll read this in our Old Testament reading next week. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. See, The the temptation of Jesus was not only to demonstrate his victory over Satan, that's important, but also to demonstrate that Jesus identifies with you and with me as a sinner and a sufferer. Jesus was not himself a sinner, but he he suffered as we do. We have an inspired interpretation of of the temptations that Jesus faced in his earthly life. The apostle to the Hebrews makes this very clear. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 17, we read this, therefore he... Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Did did you hear that? Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is what this has to do with the gospel. Because Jesus himself experienced the hardship, the physical hardships of this life, and, and experienced the outward temptations given to him by Satan himself, he is able to help you and to identify with you in your suffering, in your temptation, in your weakness. So it's not only the case that Jesus was victorious against the temptations of Satan, but if you were in Christ, both his suffering and his victory was on your behalf, in your place, in your stead. He accomplished what Adam didn't do what Israel didn't do and what you couldn't do. And he did it for you. And he has overcome temptation itself on your behalf. And again, this is is the point that Paul makes in in the book of Romans. I mentioned earlier that, that Paul says that it's through Adam, through one man that sin entered the world, but he doesn't stop his argument there. If you'll turn with me to Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. I want you to see this. Paul goes on to give us the good news that redemption also has come into the world through one man. Sin came and death came through one man, but redemption has also come. Look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, For as by the one man's disobedience, this is talking of Adam again, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Such is the problem of humanity because of one man, because of our federal head, and Adam sinned and he died, and in him we all sinned and are condemned to death. That's the default position of every man, woman, and child born since Adam. With one exception. There's one man, and we'll look at this more next week, there's one man who did not inherit Adam's sinful nature. It, it is not the case that we are sinners because we do sinful things. We do sinful things because we are sinners. Do you hear the difference? And sometimes we think in a backwards way on that. But Paul starts, Paul's saying it's because of the righteousness of one man, his one righteous act, his life and propitiation for sin, that now redemption is open to all who will believe this gospel. And so what's what's happened is the whole thing is turned upside down. In Adam we have death and condemnation and no hope, and in Christ we have a full identification with sinners and sufferers such that those who will believe him receive justification, forgiveness, a declaration of righteousness, So here, the Lord's identification with sufferers is is complete. It's genuine, it's real. And the the Bible's very clear about this fact. He himself has suffered when tempted, and he is able to help those who are being tempted. But here's where we want to be careful. We don't want to therefore conclude that Jesus is exactly like us. see, See the potential error? The Bible says that he himself has suffered when tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we can then reason thusly, well, then I'm tempted in all these various ways and Jesus is tempted just like me, so He therefore he's just like me. But we forget something very important. He is truly God and truly man. He does not have the sinful nature. So Christ, we could say, is one... Is one um, One commentary put it, Christ had only the suffering part of temptation, where we also have the sinning part. Christ had the suffering part of temptation. We get the bonus of the sinning part of temptation. See, Jesus never had to experience what you and I have to experience. What Paul described in in Galatians, for example, as the the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against the flesh. When, When Christ was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, he wasn't dealing with that as you would have been, as I would have been. So in Galatians 5, for example, Paul says, I say, I walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For 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 these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So based on what you know about the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is truly God and truly man. Did Jesus' spirit wrestle against his flesh in the same way that yours does? Did his flesh wage war against his spirit? The answer is no, it did not. And so I'm going to build upon that next week. I'm going to tease you a little bit with that now. But there's, there are very important issues in our day, even in, in you know reformed-ish circles, where this, this, this is wrong and the implications are devastating. The temptation of Jesus was only passive. It was in the form of trials, and the devil's temptations outwardly upon him. The temptation of Jesus was not active. It was not internal, as ours is. Jesus did not, his temptations did not come from disordered affections, disordered desires. Each of us has desires within us that, can we say, can we agree, we have disordered desires? Is there anyone willing to say, no, not me? No, we all have. To one degree or another, desires that are disordered. Desires that aren't holy, that are not consistent with the word of God. But it was never so with the word Jesus Christ. Jesus is the second. He's the true Adam. He is the true Israel of God. And as such, he has now become our perfect high priest in his complete identification with us. So not only is it the fact that he was the conqueror of temptation from Satan, where Adam and Israel failed, but he also becomes sin on behalf of his people. He offers himself as that perfect sacrifice on our behalf. But there's still a question that comes, though, isn't there? And perhaps this question's already in your mind, but okay, but how does that help me when I'm tempted? I I get it, that's a theological fact. Jesus was successful where Adam failed, where Israel failed. Jesus identified with sinners in his suffering and, and without sin, but how does that help me? What hope do I have when I am tempted or when I fail and I succumb to temptation, and I sin. How does it help me minister to those near to me who are suffering? How does it help you minister to those near to you who are being tempted? Parents, do you think there's any application for you? How do you help a son, a daughter, who faces temptation? How do you help a spouse? How do you help a brother, a sister, a friend, a co-worker? How do you help brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ? So That's our third Third thing I want to draw out of the text is the hope for sinners. The hope we have in Christ as sinners because of the fact that he was tempted by Satan and successfully repelled every attack of the evil one and lived perfectly and sinlessly on our behalf. So how does the temptation of Jesus help you when you are tempted? The answer is in this. The victory of Jesus over temptation is yours by faith. It is yours by union with him. If you are in Christ, then all of the victory accomplished by Christ is yours. We can so easily slide back into various forms of legalism, can't we? that we think we are justified by our performance. We think we are justified when we successfully repel the attack of the evil one, rather than looking to Christ and his work, his accomplished victory. So the text is not merely an example for us. And often, sadly, this, this text is taught this way, that this is just an example, a template, if you were to study the moves that Jesus made It's like watching a YouTube video on judo or something, and now you can go do the same thing. Or that somehow you're Daniel LaRusso looking to Mr. Miyagi to figure out how to repel the attack of the bully who keeps getting the best of you. That's not the intent of the text. It is to cause us to look to Christ and his finished work. Our hope is not found in in studying different methods or or the way in which Jesus did this or that and, and then tried to defeat Satan ourselves or trying to replicate his methods. Now our hope is found in resting in the one who endured that temptation on our behalf. To to rest in the power of the Holy Spirit who was at work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we apply this in, in a couple of key ways. One is that our source of strength for temptation becomes clearer now, doesn't it? When you were, not if, when you were tempted, from whence does your help come? From where does your strength come? Does it come from the power of your will? Does it come from the fact that, well, I got got knocked down pretty good last time, but I learned a thing or two, and I'll be better this time when it comes? Or do we look to the power of Christ and his completed work? It's a far different approach, isn't it? There's is a second application. There is hope here for those who have failed temptation. Temptation has come, and you didn't flee. You didn't resist it. You gave into it. Maybe for the thousandth time, you gave into it. Where is your hope? The temptation for the hope in that circumstance is found, again, in the one who successfully endured it on your behalf. Your hope is not found in maybe doing better next time. Your hope is not found in improving your devil-fighting skills so that you can be victorious next time. Saints, our hope, our only hope is found in the one who did what Adam couldn't do, what Israel couldn't do, and what you couldn't do. In Colossians 2, Paul makes this observation. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, which means forgiving us every time we yielded to temptation. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's the inescapable conclusion, saints. Without the triumph of Jesus over temptation, you have no hope. You have no hope in this life or in the life to come without Jesus triumphing over temptation. We're hopeless. We are helpless. Not only now, but in the age to come. So there's an important, there's an important and urgent appeal to those who are not in Christ. Because even even a non Christian, even an atheist would tell you they face temptations. The, the works of the law are written on man's hearts. There, there's something internally that says this thing was wrong, and yet I did it anyway. It's, it's, it's wrong to, to be angry and sinful and, and yell at my wife or my children, yet that's what I did. And even an atheist knows these things. But where's the hope? There isn't. Really. <laughs> The only hope is faith in the one who has done so on your behalf. If you are outside of Christ, do not say to yourself, I can manage this. Do not think in your heart, I will get better. You won't. You may deceive yourself. You may, fight, you may change the rules to your own advantage so that it looks like you've improved. The only hope is to humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ to confess that you are a sinner and that you are helpless and hopeless. And that you believe that Christ has paid the debt for you. That God has raised him from the dead according to the scriptures, proving the sufficiency of the sacrifice and that in him, and in him alone, you are victorious. So when faced with temptation, if your focus is not upon Christ's victory, then your fear, your shame, your doubt, is almost certainly going to continue, or you're going to falsely and hypocritically cover it up. Even the sinless God-man, Needed heavenly comfort after severe trial and temptation. Did you notice that? Here is Jesus in all of his sinless perfection. Physically, of course, we know he must have been weak. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, facing the immediate and direct onslaught of Satan himself. And, and after the whole ordeal was over, we're told the angels came. And ministered to him. I think that's instructive, isn't it? Even the sinless God man needed supplies of heavenly comfort after a season of temptation and suffering. There's any lessons for us as a church body to learn in terms of how we minister to one another. When a brother or sister is facing sorrow, suffering, temptations of various sorts. May may God be pleased to use us as heavenly hands, if I can use that term, to minister to them, to encourage them. Should it not be also a lesson for us when we seek to help those who are enduring suffering, and especially those facing severe temptations? Galatians 6 comes to mind. in, In the first verse of that chapter, Paul says, brothers, if any of you, if any brother is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning those who are filled with the Spirit, and Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit, chapter earlier, if any of you is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I've said this before, I remember as as a newer believer, reading that, of course as a new believer i had a much higher view of my own skills and strength and degree of sanctification but i remember kind of imagining these scenarios you know how the the, the minds of young men work and i remember thinking in terms of well if i have a friend who's fallen into sin maybe he's drunk again at the bar and i've got to go in and get him out And I'll be tempted at that point to pull up a stool next to him and join him in his drunkenness. And maybe that would be the case, but I don't think that's what Paul means at all. Parents, when you're dealing with a child who has sinned, or who's dealing with temptation, you who are spiritual, restore that one that's fallen. What are you tempted as a parent in that moment? Anger? Impatience? Self-righteousness? Do I have to make the list for you? But when you are sinned against, think about Matthew 18, verse 15 to 20. Jesus says, if your brother has sinned against you, you go to him privately. See, that that's a loving approach, isn't it? But what are we tempted to do? The list gets long, doesn't it? But we we're, we're not, our temptation here, someone's fallen into sin. You who are spiritual should restore the one that's fallen, but we are tempted at that point, aren't we? impatience he didn't repent fast enough we're tempted to to a a sort of legalism aren't we he didn't repent hard enough he wasn't he he didn't give enough he didn't give a sufficient number of tears to satisfy me we're tempted to self-righteousness i would never do what he did Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who willingly entered into temptation on your behalf, on my behalf. Isn't that comforting? Not so that we could learn from him and and use him as as the template and example. There's a place for that, certainly. so that we can keep better watch on ourselves, lest we too be tempted. As we minister to our own souls, as we preach the gospel to ourselves, but also as we preach the gospel to one another. When a brother or sister has sinned, maybe especially they've sinned against you, because it's, it's, it's even the temptations become more numerous, don't they? But even if a brother or sister has not sinned against you, they've, they've sinned, and you're aware of it. How does looking to the temptation that Christ endured shape and encourage you as you do a work of love with that brother or sister? May the Lord give us grace to look to Christ in our suffering, in our temptation. And may he give us wisdom to care for those around us who are suffering. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you have given to us this matchless gift of your Word. That that we are not left groping in the dark, trying to find our way to you. That you have made yourself known to us, and and that you've made yourself known in the written Word for which we are grateful. And you've also made yourself made yourself known in the full, complete revelation of your Son. Our Lord Jesus told us, if we have seen Him, we've seen the Father also. Father, help us to look to Christ. Help us to be ready and and eager to be honest with ourselves about temptation, to be gentle and gracious with one another when we face temptations of various kinds. Help us to look to Christ as our only source of victory when we are tempted, when that temptation has been induced and enticed by our own flesh, and when we sin against you. Give us the grace to look to the redemption that Christ has accomplished for his people. We ask this in his name and for our good. Amen.